I'm Edith Chakraborty and welcome to a special edition of The Business. This week, instead of talking about the economic crisis, we're discussing the crisis of economics. We'll analyse a now humbled profession and ask, why did so few people see this downturn coming? What lessons can we draw from the economic theories of the past? And where do we go from here? I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio is Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economics editor, Roger Bootle, author of The Trouble with Markets, and last but not least, Robert Skidelsky, political economist and biographer of John Maynard Keynes. Thank you all for coming today. Let's start with the burst of the man they used to call the Oracle. Here's Alan Greenspan, former head of the US Central Bank, giving testimony to Congress just a few weeks after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. A Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of the pricing model that underpins much of the advance in derivatives markets. This modern risk management paradigm held sway for decades. The whole intellectual edifice, however, collapsed in the summer of last year because the data inputted into the risk management models generally covered only the past two decades, a period of euphoria. Larry, what was the intellectual edifice that Greenspan's talking about there? that markets always work, that markets always clear, that people have perfect knowledge, that um, you can price risk effectively at, at all times. And Greenspan admitted there that it was complete rubbish. People talk about tail risk, the sort of once-in-a-lifetime events that seem to happen with amazing regularity because these models just didn't work. They, they were doomsday machines that they blew up when they were put under pressure. Roger, um Larry's saying the models didn't work. Greenspan saying it's not that the models didn't work, it's just that people were t- putting in too narrow a, a, a data set into them. Where do you stand? Well, I think the remarkable thing really is that these models, which were conceived of as something that would give you the riskiness of a particular portfolio for a particular bank or holding, were used to try to assess the risk for the whole financial system so that all these banks were using these if you like micro models and quite right to say that they the data that was put into them was um, very short term this is an amazing puzzle i think in so many ways that not just bankers but economists and central bankers like greenspan actually swallowed this stuff whole it's as though what had happened was a collective act of amnesia we'd simply thrown away uh, all history and all reverence and regard for history that's telling me that the what we're putting into the models is wrong. It's not necessarily telling me that the models themselves are based no, it's, on short it's, premises. It's both. Um, the, the, the fact is that the models themselves didn't take any regard, pay any regard to what was happening in the rest of the system. The assumption was that there wasn't a systemic collapse, as Larry says, that market's clear and so on and so forth. And when you do get one of those systemic collapses, those models are completely useless. Robert, is this a crisis of financial economics or economics more generally? I want to just go, uh, continue on, 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 on the, those lines. Uh, rubbish in, rubbish out. I, 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 I agree. But it's not just that the data didn't go back far enough. Even if they had gone back a lot further you might have still have got the problem because um, systems are, are, are subject to unpredictable events with large consequences. Um, and it may be that nothing in the past data would have captured the possibility of what happened. So the essential thing is that you can't just go on um, with more and more information, getting more and more accurate risk pricing models. It may be that they'll let you down even if you have all the information that is available and use it efficiently. But 
is is that a problem with economics or is that a problem with economists being treated with too much reverence? Well, it's a problem of the dominant schools of economics in the last two or three decades, which, as Larry and, and as Roger have said, um, have assumed that markets always work well and that governments always work badly. Uh, so that that is uh, that's that's the basis for um, the type of uh, regulation and type of economic policy we've had in the last three decades. There's a big fallacy, wasn't there, really, that um, economics could be treated as a hard science, and that you used increasingly complex mathematical models to show that economics was the same as physics or chemistry or biology, and it actually isn't. It's much more complex, and we know, as Roger said, history tells us that economies are much much more complex than that, and people are much more complex. They don't actually act in totally rational ways and that's what these mathematical models assumed and it was just a, just a huge blind alley for the economics profession and it screwed up okay so that's the case against economics but uh, we've got someone to speak up for the defense of the chicago school and for conventional economics here's your author for economics stephen levitt well i hope that it will lead economists to think hard about what what macroeconomists should really do. That, that this is going to, uh, unless you got some very intellectual listeners, it won't be very interesting. But I'm going to give you a short answer about about this question that will be interesting to academic economists. Academic economists who study the macroeconomy have gotten lost in mathematics. That recognizing that it's too hard to really explain how the economy works, economists build these mathematical models, which then become self-referential. And so uh, the macroeconomists build model upon model and. And ultimately, I do not think that most academic macroeconomists thought that explaining the ups and downs in the short run of the economy was their job. Uh, that has kind of been farmed out to the the economists who work at companies, you know, and banks who who are a very different kind of breed, right? They're you know they have an agenda of you know of like you know representing the bank and whatnot. They're not academics in any way, shape, or form. I'm hoping that there will be a step back in macroeconomics, and there will be a recognition that. Theory cannot come first. That really, ultimately, macroeconomics should be a descriptive uh, social science. It should be about what happens in, in the economy, and you know, to what extent can we can we uh, use patterns of the past to, to talk about the future, as opposed to a theoretical. Really, it's been horribly theoretical, and it didn't. It never made sense to me. Uh, uh, Here's why it is so theoretical. It's easy to referee papers and judge whether the math is right. It's much more difficult to, to take a paper at a journal and say, are the ideas in here about how the macroeconomy works good or not? And I think that's what pushed the, the profession so mathematically. So give us an example where macroeconomics got hideously obscure and give us an example what, what sort of subject it ought to be tackling in the future. Well, so, for instance, um, many of my colleagues are interested in business cycles. So when, you know, recessions and, and booms come and there is a theoretical line of work called the real business cycle, uh, which comes to the conclusion that recessions are not um, because people are involuntarily unemployed. It's just that for whatever reason, a bunch of people decide they all want to take time off from the labor market at the same time um, because the value of their time is low. And so everything is all in equilibrium and no one's not doing anything they don't want. Okay? It's, a, it's a model you can write down, you can solve it, but it's just when you look at real recessions, it doesn't feel at all like what a real recession is. I mean, I think what I'd like to see more of is just going to the data and breaking down you know, by sector and by industry and understanding the dynamics of the industries and then trying to see if we have ways to put together like real knowledge of, of what's going on in industries to, to build up to a picture of the economy. But that's, that really, it's been a theoretical top-down approach as opposed to like a bottom-up aggregation of data. 
Roger Bootle, since you run one of those consultancies to, uh, to banks, uh, let me ask you first, is it right that the study of macroeconomics has been outsourced to you guys? Well, in some ways that's right, but I think it's more really that the subject has fallen apart. Uh, I don't agree that the problem is that the subject's too theoretical, it's too mathematical, but I think there's nothing wrong with a fair amount of theory in economics. It's a question of on what basis you make that theory and what elements you feed into it. I mean, the best economists, like Keynes, had, it seems to me, a very broad reach. It's no accident that he was as successful as he was in analysing and predicting what happened to the economy because he had a base in theory, some mathematics, practical affairs right up to his eyeballs to the point of speculation, everything. And I think that, that, that mixture of things is actually probably essential for the makings of a really good economist. Larry, let me ask you as a journalist, did you, were you surprised by the dearth of responses that you got from academic economists in the first few weeks of the crisis? I was saddened by it. I, I thought that the economics profession had nothing really to say. And I, I, I remember talking to um, Howard Davis when, uh, when he had Paul Krugman over at the LSE and he said to me, I have 25 tenured professors of economics here, and not one of them have bothered to turn up and see Paul Krugman. And I found that an extraordinary... Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate. Paul, Paul, Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate, uh, you know, at top of his profession, a, a very interesting person. You'd think that an economist, even if he disagreed with him, might turn up and listen to him if he was on his own doorstep. And, I, and, and Howard was, I, mean, I say, tearing his hair out. He hasn't got any hair, but I mean, he, he would have been tearing his hair out had he got some. He, 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 was, he, was, he was just amazed, and so was I, really, that there was this lack of intellectual curiosity in what somebody might have to say from a different branch of economics. But it, it is indicative, I think, of the very narrow way in which so much of the profession now operates. So where do we go from here? It's pretty clear we need to find some new ways of thinking about economics, but is it necessary to go backwards to go forwards? Robert Skidelsky, you're a leading authority on John Maynard Keynes, who's all of a sudden back in fashion. Do you think Keynes would be a Keynesian in 2009? Yes. I think he'd be happy with the with the with the general approach. And the idea is that if uh, if aggregate spending declines uh, and aggregate spending is made up of private spending and government spending, and and one sec one section of it goes down, then the government has to uh, fill the gap with increased spending of its own, and that's the whole theory of the stimulus. That's what, in fact, governments all over the world did when faced with this downturn. Now, you may argue about the design of the stimulus, uh, maybe not optimal. You may also argue about its size. But broadly speaking, they did what uh, needed to be done. And I think um, uh, as a result of that, the slide hasn't been nearly as bad as it would have been otherwise. If you compare it to what happened in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s, you can s see the, the clear in influence of, of Keynes. And I think even the classical economists, the new classical economists, one of them said, well, we're all Keynesians in the foxhole. Um, unfortunately, their theories didn't explain why we got into the foxhole. Once we're there, for one reason or another, we need Keynes. Larry? Yes, I think that Keynes has a lot to offer, not just in the, the sense of the stimulus, but in the way in which he looked at markets and looked at the, the fact that people were much more uncertain about the future than the, than the current 
breed of economists would, would suggest. I think that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the Keynesian, broader Keynesian analysis about the need to, to control markets and to have some sort of broad framework was lost in the post-war era where they tried to sort of synthesize what Keynes said with classical economics. I think that was a mistake. Uh, and the, the sort of criticism of, uh, of Keynes is this is going back to the past. But, I mean, if you, if you listen to Alan, Alan Greenspan, of course, Alan Greenspan's framework goes back even further than Keynes. It goes right back to Adam Smith. And part of the problem, I think, with, with modern economics is that it's, it's, it's got nowhere further forward than Newtonian physics. I mean, it's essentially that far back. I mean, it's, 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 you know, if, if you look at it in sort of scientific terms, what we're doing with economics now is, is, is sort of prehistory. Roger, do you think there are bits of the stimulus packages or the bank bailouts that Keynes would be disappointed by? I don't think, you know, this is the right way of approaching it. You can't expect someone who's been dead now for whatever it is, 60 years or more, to actually, as it were, have a view, even posthumously, on a particular measure. And I think a lot of people actually got this issue wrong by mixing up particular bits of what Keynes said about a certain instrument of policy, whether it be interest rates or money supply or the fiscal balance or whatever, with a general approach. The general approach was surely that markets can fail. And when they fail, they, uh, so whole societies can get trapped in a state of misery, which is neither inevitable nor are you bound to simply submit to it. And in, in those circumstances, there's a clear role for the state. That was the overarching insight of his. And on that, I'm quite sure that uh, he, he would find himself in broad agreement with what uh, Obama and Brown and others have, have done. Robert, where do you think Keynes needs uh, further work done? A lot of people have not only talked about John Maynard Keynes in his crisis, they've also talked about Hyman Minsky and his theories of financial instability. Do you think there are other economists that we, we should be drawing on, upon, that we should be hearing more from? Well, Hyman Minsky drew on Keynes. He also drew on Shackle and uh, one, uh, one or two other <clears throat> economists of that period. But he, was, he would have described himself as a Keynesian. And there's quite a lot in Keynes, actually, about financial instability um, and, and, and why, why financial markets uh, can fail. And it's to do with the existence of uh, inescapable uncertainty. And the stratagems we adopt to deal with uncertainty, which is really trans- transforming uncertainty into risk, are also engine... C- potential instruments of mass destruction because we we tend to um, uh, uh, believe in phony phony numbers that don't have any uh, objective reality but we have to do that in order to keep going or to justify ourselves as rational people and bankers do it and uh, all, all people in markets do it but because there's no firm basis of conviction to hold these numbers steady then uh, when the news shifts you can have a violent collapses and I mean that's the first stage of understanding of of why markets fail and it also leads to ideas of what you can do to uh, decrease the domain of risk uh, or uncertainty I should say through financial regulation and so on. Roger it's not only Keynes who's had a revival uh, during this crisis Uh, if you look at the right in America a lot of them now start quoting the Austrian economists yeah, um, I, I, I've always been much more sympathetic to the Austrian view, I have to say, than I have been to the outright neoclassical view. But there's an aspect. How would you define the difference? Well, the Austrian view is it, it does actually give a lot of prominence to the idea of uncertainty. In that sense, it's closer to Keynes than neoclassicism. Uh, but it's got a different view about the extent to which intervention is justified. I mean, the Austrians say, okay, this, uh, this, this crisis developed the way it did. You can't actually do much about it. You must allow the system to implode and allow new institutions and practices to emerge from the wreckage. Now, I personally find that a completely repugnant and ridiculous view. Well, we tried that, didn't we, with the Lehman Brothers? They 
they tried it once and they didn't, yeah. didn't, didn't wasn't also well, a great you, success. I, th- I think the really depressing thing about all this is I'm not at all confident, you know, that he could, that uh, economists and and the subject will learn from these experiences. I keep meeting people who are saying, look, the real problem with what's gone wrong is not the markets at all. You know, it's the, it's the authority, it's the government, yeah, yeah, it's the yeah. government, mm. it's the regulators. If only they'd stop interfering, everything would be fine. Yeah, people I, blaming, I think, yeah. yeah, people blame Clinton, don't they, for yeah. saying that uh, for give, allowing people on poor incomes to buy houses. <laughs> so the subprime crisis was actually the fault of the left and the government, which seems to be a rather bizarre analysis. The, ba- the basis, I think, the basis of um, new classical economics is hatred of the state, <laughs> hatred of the government, and I think that drives the theory. Um, and it's because certain interests came to power in America under Reagan, particularly big business, that you get this um, a malign mixture uh, or symbiosis of theory, hatred of the government, financial power. And I, and I, I tend to agree with, with Roger. I think we're going to have to have three or four more crises of the same kind, which we will. Um, before um, this, you get a tectonic shift, both in power and in the way people, uh, economists, think about their subject. Okay, let's go back to academic economics. Ellen Ostrom, who last month became the first woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, is what we call an institutional economist. She says that the problem with academic economics is that complexity has become a dirty word. For me, uh, there used to be uh, a way of rejecting formal work of, well, the world's too complex, you can't do it. I don't agree with that. Uh, we have complex ways of modeling complex systems that we didn't have earlier, and we can, uh, and we must. Um, and so uh, I think uh, understanding that we have to be looking at uh, polycentric governance systems and complex economic systems is very important for us. So when you say complexity has become a swear word, what would you say were some of the most ridiculous examples of simplistic economics? Scott Gordon did a classic article in 1954 um, on the economic theory of what he called common property resources, which confused. That way we had a bad term introduced and used massively. But uh, it was a very clear model of a quadratic production function uh, where the presumption was that people would always o- overharvest. Well, the temptation is always there to overharvest, but there's a difference between the temptation—the temptation to lie—that <laughs> exists a lot of the time. But we uh, presume that people have learned how to overcome that temptation. The problem here is that temptation is a joint one. Um, uh, you know the internal norm that you have inside that I'm not going to lie um, is just you and you <laughs> with uh, many of the problems of joint use of a resource it's you and the rest of us who are jointly using that resource. Ellen Ostrom there online from the University of Indiana. Larry let's come to you first. Complexity a dirty word. Um, I don't think it necessarily is a dirty word or should be a dirty word it depends what you mean by complexity, I think that I would, I would agree that economic systems are very complex things and we should un- try and understand them. And where I depart from most of current practices that I think the complexity is an end in itself and is almost a, a veil to stop people from understanding the thinness of what's actually going on behind that veil. I think that economic systems are complex, but quite a lot of understanding it is not about formulating mathematical models it's using the using your own eyes and 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 walking around and seeing what's going on or understanding from history 
past patterns or, and just just appreciating that people do behave in rather strange ways so that if that's what complexity means then i think that's that's that, that's absolutely true i think that the, the problem has been one of disguise um, mistaking complexity for for actually esoteric mathematics robert there's some some confusion going going on i think macroeconomics is 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 simpler in a way i mean you've got large aggregates mm. you don't have to really understand in detail how each aggregate got to, got to what it yeah. what it was and no doubt uh, you know the the question of um, uh, human behavior is, is quite complex the question for example of why r- wages stay sticky um, when, 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 when there's a big disturbance is a, is a very complex one and no one's got a very, very good theory about it. But the fact that they do has certain consequences, aggregate consequences like output falls. And then you can also do things to sort of counteract it. I think what, what, the, previ- what, what the speaker, the, the no- Lady Nobel Prize winner was talking about was actually individual behaviour. And I'm rather, in, uh, rather uh, intrigued to say that lying is a question between you and yourself. I mean, it's also a question between you and your and your reputation. There's a contract, and your reputation yeah. is uh, is not not just uh, between you and yourself. It's, it it affects your relations with other people, of course. Roger, Lynn Ostrom seemed there to be making some reference to behavioural economics and to sort of new ways of actually working out how we come to decisions. What do you make of all of that? Well, I'm, I'm quite in favour of behavioural economics and that it puts economics back in touch with the fundamental data, that's to say with human beings and what they might actually be like. However, I'm quite pessimistic about what might be done with it. See, I think one of the major problems is what academics want from the subject and what people expect from their academics. And getting back to this, again, this word complexity in a rather different sense, I think the natural inclination of academics is to make something seem complex that might not actually be complex. And I think this is an area of um, human endeavour where a lot of things that are actually tremendously valuable and give insights are actually not that complex at all. And that's precisely why academics make them appear so complex, because otherwise their status uh, would not be high enough. There are some things in life that yield to intellectual power and there are some things in life that do not. They yield to effort, judgment, persistence, a whole series of other qualities. I think the problem is we've got too many brains actually pursuing subject that actually is quite simple. Intellectually speaking, it's simple, but it demands a whole lot of other things which actually they're not bringing to the party. And finally, what about economics in the real world? Speaking at the G20 conference in London in April, Gordon Brown declared the Washington consensus is over and the old belief in market fundamentalism had had its day. We'll get the panel's thoughts on that in a moment. First, here's Daniel Gay, a development economist who told me about his experiences in the South Pacific. These are some of, still, some of the, mo- the poorest countries in the world. Very volatile, vulnerable They're not seeing significant advances in human development. In fact, they're lagging most of the rest of the world. And some of the regions and the countries that reject the Washington Consensus, and I'm talking about China and East Asia, are actually prospering. In fact, there seems to be a correlation between the countries that don't do what the IMF and the World Bank says and economic growth. There's often a a problem in applying the Washington Consensus to countries which actually just... Where, where it cannot apply. So for, to go back to South Pacific, for instance, South Pacific to me is just a, a cheesy musical. I mean, what, what, what can you privatise in the South Pacific island? What, what, what does the Washington Census look like on the ground there? OK, in, in Vanuatu, where I worked for two years, 
the Asian Development Bank, uh, which is the regional bank that sort of supposed to look after development um, and that does loans in the in the Pacific. It's the equivalent of the the World Bank for the the Asia uh, Pacific region. It went to Vanuatu and it said, "Okay, here's ten million dollars worth of loans. In return, if you want this money." Um, you have to privatize and corporatize the post office, for example. Um, you have to try to privatize the airline, um, water, um, utilities. And, and it did all this. What effectively happened was it moved from being a publicly accountable monopoly, one that politicians and therefore the electorate had control over, to being a private monopoly that wasn't accountable and it was accountable really to, to shareholders and foreign investors who were interested only in profits, not in actually looking after ordinary people. The economy shrank during the next six years. It had its worst period of economic growth ever since independence in 1980. Per capita GDP went down. As a result, you know, significant kind of cutbacks in, in health and social spending. It was pretty much a disaster as far as Vanuatu is concerned. And only now after it's turned to its own homegrown economic policies that don't fit with the Asian Development Bank's model, that are different from the Washington Census, is it beginning to grow again and, and cater to its own demands? Dan Gay there, author of a new book, Reflexivity and Development Economics. Robert Sklelsi, let's start with you. The reason why there is something called Washington Census is because a lot of people believe in it and you have thousands of people working for the IMF, the World Bank and various treasury departments around the world who hold to basic principles. How do you go about changing all of that? Well, I think you've got to rehabilitate, uh, rehabilitate the role of the government in some way, intellectually. I think the, a lot of these people gave up on government much too quickly. They sort of concluded from the fact that governments were quite inefficient and did lots of things wrong and um, uh, and, and they were easily criticisable to the view that um, you have to get governments out of it It'll privatise the post office, privatise everything it's one of, the, one of the elements of the Washington Consensus and leave it to the markets they didn't consider that markets might get things very seriously wrong they didn't try to, um, didn't try to weigh up the, the wastes of government against the wastes of the market and what we've had, what we've experienced recently is a huge amount of waste going on right under our eyes at this moment. Millions and millions of people have lost jobs. And then they talk about, you know, the waste of government. Well, of course, government is inefficient and wasteful. But I mean, those two things have to be kept in balance. And there was much too much of a tendency to reject the government and all its works. And, and we've got to rest, restore that balance. We've got to find, we've got to make a case for government with all its, uh, all its known problems. Roger Bootle, um, no doubt there'll be a lot of people listening who will agree with what Robert Skidelsky uh, says there, but we're six months away from a general election, roughly, and the party that looks most likely to take over come the general election, the Conservative Party, are talking about a smaller state. We're certainly talking about um, a lower level of government borrowing, and I think this is, touches on an interesting question. Um, Robert Skidelsky talks about um, rehabilitating government, I think I might broaden that and say the state or public action in a more general sense. If you think, for instance, about what seems to have worked reasonably well, at least until recently, in the UK, we had the Monetary Policy Committee, where uh, something that legitimately falls within the realm of 
government of government or the state more generally is actually taken away from the politicians and put in the hands of uh, unelected officials acting in the public interest i wonder actually whether there isn't more scope under a new government to go more in that direction i absolutely agree with robert skidelsky that somehow we've got to rehabilitate state action i interpret this actually largely ideologically i think one has to see the history of ideas uh, in terms of the cold war and there was a, a battle between, as it were, government on the one hand and markets on the other, whereas it seems to me the solution to all this is staring you in the face. It's that uh, markets aren't always good, and we certainly don't want governments running absolutely everything. This is all about finding the right balance. And because of the Washington consensus, we've been very bad at it. I think that's a very interesting point Roger just made there. We did have a sort of some sort of balance between uh, the market and the state for most of the post-war period. The market was put in its box after the Wall Street crash, and it should have been should have remained there. And I think that the last twenty years have shown us the folly of actually allowing the unregulated market out of its cage. And I think that until politicians realise that, until they realise that we are going to have lots more crisis unless we do something about the unregulated market, um, until that happens, we are going to have more and more crisis and they're probably going to be more and more severe. Yeah, well, politicians have to realise it, but uh, politicians, you know, are only consumers of ideas. They never have any ideas of their own, original ideas. And, and, and so you have to look at the producers of the ideas to give the politicians the ideas that would actually uh, do yeah, what, that, that's, what... That's been a huge failure on the left, I think, that, that, that unlike the right, which for 30 years after the Second World War never really accepted the post-war consensus and, and worked hard uh, on an ideological, new ideological framework which was ready when the crisis of Keynesian happened. The, the left has been remarkably poor and quite lazy at actually coming up with th- their alternatives to the market. As a result, we are left with something of an intellectual vacuum now, which I think is, is a great pity. Well, that's it for our economic special. You'll find plenty more information on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Thank you to all my guests, Larry Elliott, Roger Bootle and Professor Robert Skidelsky, whose new book, Return of the Master, is out now. Today's show was produced by Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was the business.